The scripture reading this morning will be from Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 16. And if during the reading you wonder if I really know how to pronounce all of these names, the answer is, well, of course I do. (laughs) Why else would I be here? Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. This is God's word. You may be seated. In homiletics class, they say stay away from the lists, and I've always said that's a good idea. Give it to the guy that's going to read Scripture. (laughs) But it's an interesting list. Would you not agree? Rufus and his mother, who is a mother to me. What kind of woman can be a mother to Paul? And then there's uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, twins, right? And there's Epinetus, who was the first convert in all of Asia. Now these are, these are maybe just names to us, but to Paul, they're names of people that he is, he is very close to and are very dear to him. And now they are in Rome, and he is, he is sending this letter to be read to people like that. And uh, although we're starting at the, the end today, we're going to get to these names uh, at the end of the series uh, we're going to, to kind of do an overview of Romans this, uh, this morning. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to ask us uh, all to bow our heads and to pray that God bless us as we embark on the study of the book of Romans. Father, we think uh, on, on that day in Corinth, that Paul, led by Your Spirit, sat down with his secretary, Tertius, and began this correspondence to the Christians in Rome that have come all of these centuries down to us, Father. And here we are, so many thousands of miles removed and so many centuries removed And yet feeling the same impact of Paul's words on our heart and soul and mind as they must have in Rome, these 
years ago. So grateful for this book, Father. Not just personally for what it has meant to me over the years, but before our entire church and the things that it's going to be doing to us and our understanding of what the Gospel is all about and, and what the church really means. Not just in Rome, but in San Antonio. And what it means not just in the first century, but in the 21st. And how there can be a steadfastness and a confidence in the way that we stand in the middle of whatever culture we find ourselves, and to know that there is nothing that separates us from You, that You have brought us out from under Your wrath in such a way, Father, that there is a great hope and a great peace and a great joy that, that permeates our existence. Thank You for these things, Father. And so as we embark on this study, we ask that in the name of Jesus, You bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. For not only, Father, do we want to understand these words rightly, but we want to apply them to our lives. We want to eat these words and, and to absorb them into our being in such a way that we are changed. Thank You, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, I've been to Israel a couple of times. The first time I went to Israel was an experience in sensory overload. We saw a minimum of six sites per day which meant in a 10-day period we saw 60 sites, which is a lot, of, a lot of information to take in. In fact, the joke among all of us on that trip was we ran where Jesus walked. And at the end of that tour of all of Israel, we ended up in the old city of Jerusalem. And it was, uh, it was fascinating, and it was sobering, and it was, again, sensory overload. You know, when you go into these places where there is so much history and there is so much of our faith that has taken place, sometimes trying to get the information is like taking a drink out of an open fire hydrant. Uh, but in the end, we went to go and see uh, a model of first century Jerusalem, which gave us an idea of what the city looked like during the time of Jesus. Now, up here on the screen, you can kind of see the, the people to give you a sense of the scale of this model. And what was really important was seeing how this, this, uh, this city was put together and to understand how the city was laid out. The only problem, and I'm not a guy that fills out, I, you, you know, we've seen a million of the, the suggestion boxes around. It, it's been a part of our generation for a long time. I'm not the kind of guy that would ever fill out a, any kind of a suggestion for a suggestion box, but I did have a suggestion for the, uh, for the professor when he was asking about the trip to Jerusalem, not just to Israel, but this particular segment of it, Jerusalem. And I said, the problem as I saw it was that what we saw at the end was really what we needed to see at the beginning to give us some perspective. Walking through those old streets and walking through those marketplaces and sometimes those walls are so close and the people are, are pressing on you that you lose a sense of where you are in, in relation to Herod's palace or the temple or the old city of David, the Ephel, those pools that, that, that are there. You, you lose a sense of perspective. Now, this morning, as you know, if you've been to Bible class, we're beginning a series of sermons on Romans and a, a series of Bible studies in our adult classes uh, for, for the, uh, this next quarter that's going to deal with Romans. And as probably as it's already been covered in your Bible classes, the book of Romans is one of the most important documents ever written in the history of the world. It just is. And the theme of the book, and I'm going to give it to you in a very general way, and then we're going to, we're going to drill down more deeply into it as we go through the weeks, 
The theme of the book can be summarized as this. The Gospel changes everything. The Gospel changes everything. In other words, it is the Gospel that redeems us. Our enslavement to sin has ended. We are redeemed. And not only that, the Gospel reforms us. We, we begin to, to hunger after the things that God hungers. We, we see things as God sees them. We feel for the things that God feels for. We, we have a value system that is completely reformed. An ethic, a spiritual ethic in the way that we conduct ourselves every day that is completely reformed. And as the Gospel not only permeates our life and our church, the body of believers, and it begins to permeate as we live that way in this community, it begins to reverse culture itself. It's very common to think of uh, the Christian culture as a counterculture. The Christian culture is not the counterculture. The, li- the, the culture we live in is the counterculture. It's not the beginning culture. The, the Christian culture, the culture that is, is described in the Bible, people loving one another and loving God and recognizing the greatness of God, that is the original culture of creation. It is the counterculture that has overtaken and it is the counterculture that the Gospel challenges. And so to help us to get our mind around the book, we're going to start at the end by going to the very last chapter of the book. But before we we begin to think about that, just uncovering some background of the letter, I think, is a little bit important. Uh, Again, you probably uh, talked about this in your class this morning. Paul is probably in Corinth. It's probably the the year A.D. 57 when he gets to the, the place where he's going to write this letter. And when you think about letters in the first century, one of the things that was a bit curious to me as I was thinking about correspondence and Romans in particular and correspondence in general, how in the world would Paul and Corinth, all of those miles away in the first century, get a letter to people in Rome in a place that he's never been to at a time when street names and house numbers have not even been thought up yet by the Roman Empire? Some years ago, 2005, Ellen and I, along with Mark Blankenship, are headed down to Rio de Janeiro, one of the largest cities in the entire world. Not only that, but one of the cities in the world with the most tremendous, dense population areas, neighborhoods, that you will find anywhere in the world. And one of the things that, uh, that, that Blankenship likes to do before he goes anyplace, whether it's South America or, or in the east someplace, is to find a map so he can kind of acquaint himself with the city and some of the places of note and of interest. And one of the things that we noticed as we opened up this map is that the main highways and the main thoroughfares were named, but there were large sections of the city of Rio, sometimes uh, with some of these neighborhoods with a population of a million people, there were not any street names and there were not any house numbers. So how, in, in, in a million people, how do you find your way around? How do you get a letter delivered? Well, during the imperial period, which Romans was written in, which began with Augustus, you did have a type of a Pony Express where the writers were given a diplomatic pass that allowed them to cross borders and to go through cities and to enter gates without uh, any problems in order to deliver correspondence. But if that was not something that was an option for you in that moment, you had either a friend or you had a servant that would make the delivery. And if that friend or servant did not know the exact locale of, of where that, that letter was supposed to go, he, he knew the name and he, he might know the family name, but he didn't know exactly where in the city he, he was supposed to deliver it, what he would do is he would go to that neighborhood that was the last known place where that person had lived. In Rome's case, it's one of seven hills. 
And he would begin to ask questions with the people that he was passing by until he was able to narrow his way down and to find the recipient that the letter was to be delivered to. Now, it's very possible, we don't know for sure, it's very possible that this Phoebe that is mentioned in chapter 16, verse 1, who is from Corinth and from the port area of Corinth, the Syncre, that she is the one who has delivered this letter to Rome. And she is the one that Paul is writing to the people, in the Christian folk in Rome, as warmly greet and, 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 and open your arms to her. Now again, probably A.D. 57 from Corinth. It makes its way to Rome. And by that time, some very important history has taken place, not just in the world, but specifically in Rome. I take you to Acts chapter 18. Paul has left Athens. He has gone on to Corinth. There he has met a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the, the Jews to leave where? Rome. Now, that expulsion by Claudius of all the Jews, all the Hebrews out of Rome, happened about A.D. 40. 42. Now, Claudius, as an emperor, is gone by A.D. 54, which brings us to the last of the Julio-Claudian emperors, where you now have Nero, who is running Rome, and he is allowing the Jews to trickle back into Rome. They have permission to come back into the city. Now, during that time that the, the, the Hebrews had been expelled, the Gentile Christians have pretty much been the established people of God in that city. Well over a decade, about 12 years, the Gentile Christians have kind of been running the show according to, to their own sensibilities. Now Hebrew Christians are joining the church. It creates some issues. The Gentile Christians had a pagan background. They had grown up in idolatry. Uh, the Christian faith, the gospel had brought them out of idolatry. It was changing their lives. But they had grown up differently from Hebrew Christians who had a background in, that was steeped in Judaism and in Torah. And how are they to become one in Christ with their different backgrounds and their, their, their different levels of understanding of God and their cultural sensitivities? How are they to, to come together and to get along with one another, even though spiritually speaking, and, and if not just spiritually, at least ethnically, they have these tremendous differences in, in culture? Well, on top of that, there are political questions. Why should, uh, what should the Gentile stance be towards people who have been politically exiled? These people, from one standpoint, that have been exiled, have, were exiled for a reason. It may not have been known to the, to, the, the, to the Gentile Christians. But how are we supposed to accept back? And, and how is this supposed to happen that the, the, these Hebrew Christians are coming back in, in, into our fellowship when the state, when the government, when the empire, when the emperor himself has thrown them out. And if they begin to make up a significant number of our fellowship, will that bring the eyes of Rome, the eyes of the emperor, the eyes of those that run the praetorium? Are, they, are those eyes going to be focused on us now? Lots of questions. And so when Paul thinks about going to Rome, one of the things that he thinks about are the issues in the fellowship of the Christians in Rome. And this is what Paul is addressing in this letter to the Christians that make up the fellowship, the body of Christ in Rome. Now, he wants to go to Spain. 
chapter 15, he writes to him and says, point blank, I want to go to Spain. I'm going to go to these to the borders where nobody has planted churches. I want to go to Spain and I would like for the church in Rome to help me get there. He also covets their prayers. He's uh, in Corinth, but he's on his way to Jerusalem with a collection. And he, and he says to the church, to these, to these folks in Rome, he says, Sunogunizomai. Agonize with me. Strain every nerve in prayer as I get ready to go to Jerusalem and deliver this, this, this collection. And the reason that he covets their prayer and the reason that he, he's asking them to agonize with him in, in prayer is that he wants all to go well when he gets to Jerusalem. And the likelihood is that there's going to be trouble there. But I think that these are secondary to the primary issue and the reason that he writes this book. The bulk of the letter addresses how people who are as different from each other as a man is from a woman in a marriage can become one body, unified, and resembling the Christ in all things through the multidimensional impact of the Gospel. Remember, the Gospel changes everything and everyone. It redeems us. And it reforms our thinking and our living and our values and our ethic. And it reverses what is human conventional wisdom into godly wisdom. And it changes trends into trends that reflect the kingdom of God. So to help them get their mind around this issue, and for us as well, consider a couple of things in this book. Paul never refers to the, capital T-H-E, the church in Rome throughout this letter. Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth. He writes to the churches in Galatia. He writes to the churches of the Thessalonians. But it's different here. The common New Testament word for church is the word ecclesia. That word does not appear in Romans until at least the last chapter where it appears in the context of these house churches and these little fellowships that are spread among the, uh, throughout the city of Rome of which there are at least five house churches. Paul is writing predominantly to a Gentile audience. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, he says point blank, I am talking to you Gentiles. In Romans chapter 9 verses 4 and 5, it's the people of Israel and then the third person plural, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenant is the receiving of the law. Theirs are the patriarchs. He's, he's writing to Gentiles, predominantly. There are places in Romans where I think that Paul is very happy for, for the Hebrews to be listening in. But predominantly he's writing, I think, to the Gentile audience. The Gentiles make up the majority of the Christian presence in Rome. The Hebrews have been kicked out. They've only for a couple of years been allowed to come back. They're trickling in. But it's the Gentiles that create the cultural agenda. And in so doing, the danger is that they will marginalize the Jewish Christians and make them not feel welcome into the fellowship of the majority. Paul says, greet and kiss. He uses the word greet, a second person plural imperative. He is talking to his audience and saying, you all, imperative as a command, greet. All of these people that Don just did such an excellent job reading all of their names. 
the verb aspazomai is is a word that that means to greet, but but it means more than what you do when you pass somebody on the street. Every uh, weekday morning at about 4.15 in the morning as I'm out walking the dog, I pass the same guy in the same place every day. He's walking one direction. I'm walking the other direction. I say I'm the first one because uh, uh, I know he's coming and it's kind of a game. I say good morning. He says good morning. I, it's some obligatory comment about weather. It's cold today. He'll say, hope it's warmer tomorrow. Or if it's hot outside, boy, it's hot out now. It's going to get hotter later in the day, he'll say. And then he keeps going and I keep going. I couldn't tell you what the guy's name is. I couldn't tell you if he's married or not, even though I suspect he is. I couldn't even tell you where he lived. And yet I greet him every day. You see, there's a way to greet people that is very, very superficial. Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying, Aspazomai, wrap your arms around this person. Give them a holy kiss. Could you imagine about 4.15 in the morning as I see this cat coming down the road and I'm you know, walking with that German shepherd and about the time I get equal with him, turn 90 degrees and, Hello, brother! You know, grab him and give him a big old kiss. That might not be the best thing ever. But Paul is saying, greet. Warmly greet. Wrap your arms around these people. Give them a holy kiss. I can't wait to preach on that somewhere down the road. The holy fist bump. But give them a holy kiss. And behind all of that is the Gospel. Only the Gospel can grab people's attention and say, even though you're different, even though you come from a different background, even though you may not understand each other culturally very well, in Christ, you have something in common. And that's where we come to the overview. Paul does not begin the letter by telling the church to greet, to greet, to greet. That's what he says at the very end of the book. What he does at the very beginning of the book is to begin this argumentation that allows them to understand by the time he gets to the 16th chapter how and why they should greet. And where he begins in the first chapter is with this. All humans, and we're going to do the overview in three points, all humans have something in common. In verses 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. But then we read verse 18, the wrath of God is being, say it, revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. What Paul does at the very beginning of this letter to a people that are steeped in differences and struggling to figure out how they're to be one in Christ, he reminds them that all human beings have one thing in common, and it's, it's one of really two things. Either they, are, they have in common salvation from God, a salvation they can never earn on their own, that's what they have in common with each other, or if they don't have that, what they have in common with each other is the wrath of God. And we'll spend more time talking about this in the coming weeks, but that wrath of God comes on humans who reject the truth of God. That even that truth that they can see about God as it's revealed in nature, which is not the complete truth of God, 
but at least enough for people to recognize that there is a God with a certain kind of a nature and a certain kind of power. His wrath comes on those folk that reject that truth of God and exchange it for a lie. But not only that, those that say you know, there's not a God, but, but also on those who think because they have adopted some kind of a moral system that allows them to be at least morally elevated above everybody else by the things that they do or the, the, the good things that they do or the good things that they don't do, that wrath falls on them as well. Because they are not perfect. They have broken. They have broken law as well. Even though they may not have broken as many or do a better job of keeping other laws than other folks. And then thirdly, it comes on humans who think that they're okay because they have a knowledge of God. And Paul sums it up this way in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as it's written, there's no one who is righteous. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And then that great verse that reminds us of where we stand before God without Christ, without the cross, without grace. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He begins by reminding them that they're really nothing without the Gospel. Whatever they might be in Rome at that point that he's writing to them in AD 57, that they all had a beginning starting point, and that is the wrath of God being poured out on them Unless through faith, in believing the gospel, the righteousness of God had been revealed in them. Which then brings to the second point, God offers something unique. Paul has written that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in verse 23. In verse 24, the thought continues. He says, but all are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He did it through the shedding of His blood. And it is to be received by faith. And Paul is reminding all of those that are hearing this letter being read that what human beings could not do on their own, Christ accomplished. That the battle that humans could never win has been won for them. His life, the Christ life, was subbed in for theirs on the cross. And Jesus received what we deserved in order for us to receive what He deserves. And what we receive is a peace, chapter 5, verse 1, with God. And what we receive from God, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, no condemnation, say it with me, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say it again. There is now no condemnation for those... Amen? There is nothing, Paul will say, that separates the people of faith from God's love. And if an infinitely holy God can bring fallen human beings to Himself through Christ, then this infinitely holy God can bring fallen human beings together through Christ. And that's where Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 come in. They're the pivot point of the letter. That Jews and Gentiles, all people are brought to God through faith and there is no basis for pride. There is no basis for pride in either of these groups because all humans have the same thing in common. Sin and the need for God's grace. Well, it's one thing, as you and I know, to talk about what we ought to be... 
Paul is so good about not just talking about what we ought to be without getting to that section of his letters where it's how to be what we ought to be. And that's where Romans chapter 12 picks up. And this is where the church confirms the gospel that they have believed and have received and has reversed them and redeemed them and reformed their thinking and changed the way they look at other human beings, especially those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans uh, uh, chapters 12 through 15 are very practical. They present the... And quite frankly, those three chapters or those four chapters present some of the greatest challenge that you will ever face in your life. To embody the Gospel. To love each other without hypocrisy. When's the last time you said you would pray for somebody and didn't? Devotion to others, being devoted to prayer. Blessing those who persecute you. Never paying back evil for evil. evil, Never taking revenge. But leaving that to God. Feeding enemies. Not allowing the politics of empire to trump the gospel of the kingdom when it comes to, to fellowship. Chapter 14 is really about two mature Christians One who says, I can, and the other one who says, I can't, or no way should. Two mature Christians who disagree over something that's that's taking place culturally among them. One who says he can versus one who says he can't. Paul addresses that. Chapter 15 is about how the mature in Christ deal with those that are not all that mature in Christ. And Paul knows that if the church in Rome realizes how blessed it is to be recipients of God's grace, then it's going to change the way that they interact with one another. And it's only after taking 15 chapters to explain all of this that at the end of that letter that he is sent to a group of Christians struggling with how to relate to one another. That he says, greet. Greet them. Wrap your arms around them. They're in Christ with you. Give them a holy kiss. Which means whenever a human lips touches the cheek or the forehead of another human being, what does it mean? It means acceptance and affection. He says, greet one another. You know, greeting's not always easy. Saw the uh, the movie uh, To Kill a Mockingbird a couple of days ago, and I was reminded how difficult it has been in our own country and in our churches to greet one another, especially those that are different from each other. One of the things that threatens to pull the church apart, and not just our church, but every church in America, threatens to pull it apart, is the inability of people who have Republican and democratic political leanings to greet. We have problems still with race. We still have issues with with, with everything that our cultural struggles with. We as a church, as as, as long as we, we, we say we are the church, and as long as we struggle to be the church, these will be issues that we will we will have to deal with. 
But in the end, one of the things that confirms the Gospel as, 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 as greatly as anything that I might say are the changed lives. The changed lives that, that sees the greatness of the Gospel in diversity. Not just in color of skin, but in, in checkbooks and, and in academic uh, uh, prowess and experiences. In, in levels of spirituality, maturity and immaturity. They'll see the Gospel confirmed in us when they see people say, this is what matters most to us. Is that what Christ died for in bringing us to God is also what is going to bring us together in love, without hypocrisy. Where we're able to sacrifice and to give up and, and to do without in order for that Gospel to be confirmed in our life. You know, people can debate all they want with words. The one thing you cannot debate with is a changed life. And friends, sometimes your life is the only Bible that some people are going to read. Greeting is not always easy. But then we think of Christ leaving the splendor and the majesty and the perfection and the love and the harmony and the partnership that He had with God the Father and God the Spirit, the splendor of heaven to make us His brethren. And that was not as easy as it took a lot of suffering and a lot of humility and an unfathomable love as well as a brutal death on the cross so that we could be called His brethren. He calls us to do the same. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through this book of Romans. We're done with the overview. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. And maybe one of the things that you've been struggling with, though, is trying to make sense of, 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 of the Gospel. It is, it, is, it is the thing that changes everything. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be without pain and at times suffering. Sometimes because of the Gospel, those very things are going to come into your life. But the thing that changes is your heart and your soul and your mind and all of your relationships and your value system and the things that you hold dear and a strength and a strength that comes to you from God. If you've never become a Christian, the opportunity to do so is today. And if you've been struggling with your faith and need the prayers of the church, the opportunity for that prayer to come and that strength to come to you in the form of the encouragement of your brothers and sisters is today. These shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and speak to them as we stand and sing together.